Empty Frames is an independent production. The commentary expressed here is our own and does not reflect the opinions of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum or its staff. To learn more about the museum, including the 1990 theft, please visit the museum's website at www.isgm.org. If you have any critical information relating specifically to the 1990 theft, please contact the museum's security director via the options provided on the museum's website. The museum continues to offer a reward totaling $10 million for information that can lead to the return of the stolen artwork. We are bothered by the loss the art world suffered in 1990, and we are not content with the status quo. One stolen painting to note is from Manet, a French artist who created Che Tortoni, circa 1880. It's an elegant depiction of a man sketching a half-consumed beer on the table as he calmly looks at his audience. We started this podcast to raise awareness of the theft and to show our support for the ongoing recovery efforts. While those recovery efforts progress as they do daily, we encourage our listeners to visit the museum, to appreciate its incredible collection, both past and present, and to donate directly to the museum through its website. Again, if you enjoy this podcast and you feel as we do about the missing artwork, the most productive way for you to express your view is to donate directly to the Gardner Museum via its website. Go to isgm.org and look for the Join and Give tab, where there are options to make a donation of any size to support the museum's mission. Please donate today. And when you do, let us know on Twitter so we can personally thank you there. Thanks again. On March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men dressed as police officers were admitted into the building by security, claiming to be responding to a disturbance call. In 81 minutes, 13 pieces of art were stolen. Among the portraits stripped from their frames were works by Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt. Estimated at half a billion dollars, the heist has been categorized as the largest and most frustrating of all time. Theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the crime are abundant. In this podcast series, we will dig as deep as possible into the case, the theories, and the social and economic impact the greatest unsolved art heist of all time had on the community. This is Empty Frames, a heist story. Welcome back to Empty Frames. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios. What's up, Lance? What is going on, Tim? How are you today? I'm doing great. It's beautiful outside here in Boston, and uh, we got a bunch of uh, tweets for this book giveaway. Yeah, we were given by Deb at HarperCollins, uh, The Gardener Heist by Ulrich Bozer, and The Art of the Heist, Confessions of a Master Thief, by Miles Connor and Jenny Seiler, uh, generously given to us, and we're going to give them away to a couple of uh, people who tweeted the most interesting tweets to us, and we are the judges on here, so basically it's up to us to come up with the most interesting ones. We're the final word. And today's episode, we are talking to former gardener night watchman Jeffrey Rockwell. He is 
uh, currently an artist living in Brooklyn, and uh, he was a night watchman and worked there, and so we have a fascinating interview. What I like about the direction the show is going is we're not talking about the ordinary business of the heist. We're, we, we get into a little bit of, uh, you know, in the previous episodes, we get a little bit on the mob angle and this angle and that angle, but... I like the direction of exploring the museum through the eyes of a former night watchman. He was there just before the heist, so he wasn't present when it happened, but it still affected him. He still had uh, experience with law enforcement um, after the heist. And a really cool guy and gives us a really unique insight into what it's like wandering the halls of the uh, Gardner Museum after hours. Okay, so... The first tweet we got in this book giveaway, Lance, uh, we got one from Dave Powers. He says, my theory is that the subjects were like the moving paintings from the Harry Potter universe, and they grew tired of their confinements and decided to extricate themselves. I said right in the beginning when we started this book giveaway, didn't I, Tim? I said, if we get something that can connect Harry Potter with the heist, that's our, that's our tweet. I didn't say that. <laughs> but we love it anyway. What a great tweet. And uh, we got one from Tony Dixon. He says, I can't help but to picture the heist going down like the scene in the 1989 Batman movie where their Joker and his minions take over the museum. He says, if you want to solve this case, call Batman. That also creates a great visual, too, because you remember that scene from Batman where Prince's song Party Man is playing while Jack Nicholson is spray painting smiley faces on the on the paintings. And uh, to put that in the Gardner you know, world is a really, really cool visual. It's a really cool imagery to have. I agree. So a couple of great tweets there. So thank you, Tony and Dave. And uh, whoever tweets us first on a, on a private message gets to choose the book. And, uh, and then the books, of course, are The Gardener Heist by Ulrich Bozer and The Art of the Heist, Confessions of a Master Thief by Miles Connor and Jenny Seiler. I'm going to put a bonus out there as well. I'm going to say Tim and I will write an accompanying note with the book. A little personal uh, message from us that you can frame using framebridge.com and uh, put it up in your uh, in your living room. And the honorable mention tweet goes out to Real Savage. They say, at empty underscore frames, I'm done with this podcast. You're both tired of our electoral college? That figures. This is a platform. You're at work. Why do you think I need to know your political leanings? And tweet. Um, well, real savage. Pretty sure we just joke in one of our ad reads. When I read that tweet, my first reaction was, wow, that was just a joke. It was a off-the-cuff joke. I actually, full transparency here, I stole it from David Mamet's movie State in Maine. That is not an original joke. And I, I thought that it fit in there with the uh, with the problem that Tim had uh, presented to me. And But we have a follow-up on that, right? Well, the funny thing is that Trump came out this week and uh, also said that he's tired of the Electoral College. So you really can't win with politics either way you go. And uh, trust me, we didn't give our political leanings. 
Right. That is where that's not a platform that I am choosing to stand on. It was just a joke. Other honorable mentions, one from Evie who says she started an account just for us. So thanks, Evie. Welcome to Twitter. Your theory is based off of episode five. Isabella Stewart Gardner made a lot of waves in Boston and had close relationships with married men. Is it possible that an heir of a spurned wife was getting back? It's far fetched, but is it disproved? Yikes. So we're talking a little revenge here. It's a good uh, it's a good theory. I like where your head's at. Uh, keep those ideas coming, of course. And then Lindsay says, low-level mafia member was holding on to them, panicked because of how huge it got, and threw them away or shoved them in an attic. Low-level mobster dies in an unrelated incident. Now others don't know where they are. Still in Dusty Attic? Lindsay, is this a confession? Speaking of confessions, Kat Harding accused us. She says our th- her theory is that we pulled off the heist and now we're doing the podcast to better hide in plain sight. We love that. I was nine years old back then. I think Lance was 35. I was uh, 35 and just noticing that I was balding. <laughs> okay, so here we are. Let's play this interview with artist Jeffrey Rockwell. Thank you very much for listening. Follow us on Twitter at empty underscore frames. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. We're literally everywhere. Check out emptyframespodcast.com as well. Welcome to Empty Frames, Jeffrey Rockwell. How are you, Jeffrey? I'm good. Great. Thanks for joining us. So sure. you you are a, a former guard. A former night watchman. Okay. Thank you. No problem. Uh, yes, I um, worked at the Gardner Museum in the late 80s as a night watchman. Very cool. You came to us in a sort of roundabout way. Our Mr. K had forwarded an article that you had written after your time at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. He forwarded us this article, and we read it. And instantly thought, we need to have this guy on the show because it just became very apparent that you um, had knowledge of the museum itself. Can you talk a little bit about that article that I mentioned? A friend of mine uh, who works at the Globe uh, asked me to write that because they were doing a special insert um, and for the Globe. I, th- I, I think it was about six years ago. They had done some uh, renovations at the museum and expanded it a bit and they were doing a special uh, issue in the insert in the globe for that so uh, she asked me to write this piece and the name of the article is confessions of a former night watchman yeah former isabella stewart garden museum night watchman yeah okay yeah we'll we'll uh tongue twister <laughs> we'll 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 link to it for the um, listeners because it is a really really good article. Can I ask one question before actually getting to any of the uh, the nitty gritty about the heist or the job? What was mm-hmm. what were the paintings like? So you were there before they got stolen. Oh sure, um, the Vermeer painting was one of my favorite paintings in the entire museum. So when I heard that that had been stolen, that was uh, uh, particularly painful. My other favorites of the ones that were stolen were, was the um, Storm on the Sea of Galilee, the Rembrandt painting. That was a, a really striking painting and uh, apparently was the only seascape that Rembrandt had ever painted. And uh, one interesting thing, there's a little self-portrait of him that he painted as one of the crew members on the ship. 
That's right. Yeah, he's looking right at the uh, the artist, I suppose, right? Or right himself. at the viewer. Yeah, he's yeah. looking at you. Those two pieces were were a real loss. All of the work that was stolen, you know, it's just it's just tragic. Yeah. And you're an artist as well. You're you currently reside in uh, New York, and you work as an artist. And you sent us in preparation for this interview. You sent us two of your sketches. Uh, one right. of the concert and one of the Storm in the Sea of Galilee, and that was uh, those are really cool. Um, was that something yeah. that you would do while you worked there? Before I started as a night watchman, I worked as a you know a gallery attendant for a couple of months. And um, although they had a prohibition on this, uh, I always carried a sketchbook with me. And when there weren't too many people in the galleries, I um, would sketch the artworks. And I, I had done a couple of. Uh, uh, both those paintings I talked about, the concert and Storm on the Sea of Galilee. So I thought you guys might be interested in seeing that. So you said that they had a prohibition on on carrying notebooks. Is that for the sole purpose to not have people sketch the artwork, or was it just the, they didn't want any record keeping? I think if, if you were a visitor, um, you could get permission to do this. But, you know, um, I would say 75% of the security guards were art students or or young artists and they just probably didn't want to have too much of uh too much sketching going on by the staff and you know be too distracting oh right protecting the artwork not uh, studying it so much you know right exactly what was the difference between those jobs that you held at the gardener well you know one was uh, during the day when the museum was open and um the other one was at night when it was closed. Being a night watchman was much more uh, interesting to me. So I was really happy um, when someone quit and there was a position open. And I immediately asked uh, Lyle Grindle, who was the head of security at the time, if I could um, have that job. And he, he agreed. So. so why was it a more sought after position? Well, I, you know, for most people, it probably wasn't because, the, you know, the hours are weird. And it's, uh, I think a lot of people would find it boring. But um, I, I really I really liked it because it, it, just the, the experience of uh, wandering around in the galleries uh, at night and, um, you know, looking at the artwork and checking out the, the vibe of the whole place was, uh, I don't know, it was really kind of exciting. That leads me to one of my questions. You walked around the galleries at night. I guess it's a two-part question. What was the protocol for a night watchman, and what could you uh, sort of get away with as far as doing your own exploration, uh, curiosity, satis- you know, satisfying? There were two people working, and uh, we would alternate. One person would sit at the at the security desk, and the other person would do a round of the, all of the museum grounds. And then you're supposed to alternate. So one person would do a round, and then they, that person would then sit at the desk, and the other person would do a round. And so you um, go uh, everywhere in the museum, all, all kinds of places that weren't that most people never got a chance to see. Like there was a, a, an attic part of the museum that was filled with a lot of uh, objects and uh, sculptures and things like that that never got exhibited because... Uh, one of uh, Isabel Stewart Gardner's policies was that nothing could be changed. You know, she set up everything exactly in a very specific way. So there was a lot of stuff that she owned that uh, never never got exhibited. So 
as a night watchman, you have the chance to look at all this stuff, you know, like Roman heads and things like that. There were there are also parts of the museum that are roped off. So as a normal guest, you wouldn't be able to get into these places, but as a guard, you would have to because the way it was done at that time, and I, I think it was changed shortly after I stopped working there, was that um, in each room there was a key, and you would carry around kind of a large clock about the size of a canteen, and you would go into each room and you'd take the key and you'd put it into the clock that you carried to turn it. And that would record what time you were in each room. In some of these rooms, this key was in a in a part of the gallery that was uh, roped off. So you'd you know, climb back there and there'd be all this stuff that nobody ever got a chance to see and you could check it out. Was that something that was commonly known to visitors? Well, it was a surprise to me uh, when I... First became a night guard, I had no idea that um, this existed. Yeah. What was the security like inside the attic? Was it something that um, you know had a uh, uh, motion detector? Was it the same as through the galleries? Like if if someone was up there, you'd you'd know it. Yeah, there was uh, motion detectors in all the rooms. The director of the museum at the time uh, essentially lived in a uh, a penthouse apartment at the museum during the period that you worked there. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And what was what was his name? Roland Hadley. Okay, was it typical for directors to live in this apartment? Um, I assume so at the time. I don't know what the history was with the uh, directors before or after him. Um, but uh, yeah, he lived there. Um, he, he was kind of an odd guy. He was a, a real um, Boston blue blood. You know, if you could picture like a combination of. Uh, William Buckley and Thurston Howell. He might end up with uh, Roland Hadley. And uh, <laughs> would would a uh, solid definition of that be uh, described as Brahmin, or am I confused? Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, like a <laughs> hot potato uh, in the mouth Brahmin. type. That's it. And you know, he he had kind of this royal air, and he acted as if it was his house in a way. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so essentially, you'd be you, you, at night when you're doing your rounds and you're going through the uh, the galleries. You're he was sort of he would he might consider that as you kind of roaming through his house. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Uh, was he uh, polite enough? Oh yeah. You know, okay. I'd like uh, I, I don't want to uh, dish too much on him. He was dismissive of the staff. You know, as, as, okay. As, yeah. Position. So what about hiding in the museum? Was there any chance that anyone could have hid inside the museum after it closed? No, I, I don't think that that would have been possible because um, there are motion detectors in all of the galleries. And um, we would have seen this at the desk. Uh, there, At the desk, there was a, um, a large board with a with lights, you know, and, and the next to each light was the name of the gallery. And so if there was anything moving in any of the galleries, the, the light would show up that, you know, that the motion detector was being set off. And I, I know that this would happen because uh, um, often I worked uh, the second shift, which was probably like 3 to 11. So 
I was there while the museum was still open. And then after it closed, and, you know, sometimes after the museum closed, uh, some curators or whoever might be lingering around in uh, certain rooms, and you could see where they were by the by the board that we had with the motion detector lights. And this is um, the local alarm system, correct? That we, yeah, yeah, that, that we mentioned? local alarm. It wasn't connected to the police, although at the desk we did have a, a button like a bank teller might have that you could um, press and that would uh, immediately call the police. Okay, cool. We can get into this now. You said earlier that the night shift always has two people or always had two people. One would be at the desk and one would be going through the galleries making the rounds. When you're sitting at the desk, you said under the desk, like a bank teller, like you'd imagine, would have an emergency alarm directly uh, connected to the police department. Mm Mm-hmm. And also at the desk, there was a monitor that was connected to the camera, which was uh, outside uh, the security door on Palace Road, correct? Right, yeah. So walk us through the process of if I'm a night watchman sitting at that desk and I am approached by somebody who is, you know, asking to enter that side entrance. Well, okay, they would ring the buzzer, and uh, you could see them on the video screen. And if it was somebody that you knew, you know, maybe um, you'd buzz them in. And they would uh, first come in through, uh, there were two doors that they would have to come in through. First, they would come in through the first door, and then they'd be inside a a small foyer where um, if you're sitting at the security desk, there's a big window and you could see the person who was inside this small foyer. Then you would have to buzz them in again to go through the second door to actually enter the uh, area where the security desk was. That's great. The first view that you see of anybody who wants to enter through that security entrance is on the on the monitor, and that's right. facing outside. And mm-hmm. how clear is the monitor? If you were to look at that, would you be able to tell if it's a pizza delivery guy or if it's a... Yes, you, you would know uh, who is outside. Yeah. Okay, I think we know it what was, I'm it, getting it was, at. It was pretty clear. It was live feed. I think it's a, it was a different uh, camera than the um, security footage that uh, came out um, not too long ago that shows somebody um, being buzzed in uh, the night before the robbery. Different angle, really? I think that I think it was a I think that's a different thing. I think that was a, you know one of these um, security cameras that takes a picture like every five seconds or something. Oh, and uh, and the the what we had was you know a live feed, but it wasn't being recorded. You know, and this was the late '80s, so they weren't so advanced uh, techn- technologically. Gotcha. So that was just mo- more more for the purpose of the guard to see what was going on outside, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, for, right. For document. What about the security room then? As as a night watchman, would you have known where uh, any footage of you would have been? I guess th- I guess the footage from the night before that angle. Would you have known where to find that from the night of the heist? Uh, no. Um, if someone were to ask me, okay, where where are the tapes for the security cameras? I would say, okay, they're probably in the um, head of security's office. But I wouldn't have no. I would have had no idea where 
to look for them. Uh, I was never shown where the tapes were or or anything like that. Is it your opinion that that is just protocol, or was that an oversight of the head of security? Meaning, was it protocol because they don't want their night watchmen knowing, maybe for their own safety in case they do get robbed? Um, well, actually, that doesn't make sense. What? Yeah, so what's your opinion on that? Was it they just, they're not supposed to tell the night watchmen where the security yeah, room is? I, I don't know if it was uh, planned that way. Um, but I, I just didn't know where they were, and I, and I don't, I could, I don't imagine that other uh, night guards did either. Um, maybe some of the guys that worked there, you know, there were there were some guys that worked there for quite a long time. So maybe they knew these things, but uh, I didn't. Did you have any crossover with Richard Abbott? No, he started after I left. Right, you were there from uh, '86 to '88. So yeah, you you would have uh, you would have missed him, and you lived in Boston at the time, right? Yeah, JP. JP, nice. JP's a a great neighborhood. Do you know when those motion detectors got put in? No. Uh, okay. I, I'd imagine they'd been there for years uh, okay. before I started there. Because some people had said that they had squatted in the museum, that they did stay in overnight and actually slept in there, and I'm not sure when that was. It wasn't. Uh, probably in the 80s, might have been the 60s or 70s, uh, potentially later. But you're saying if those motion detectors were in at that time, there's no way. Yeah, uh, no one could have done that when when I was working there. What about Larry O'Brien? Did he look like the man on the footage from the night before video? Yeah, I didn't know Larry. Uh, I think he started, he must have started either right at the very end of when I was working there or maybe he even started after the second uh, in command uh, for security under Lyle was a guy named Chuck when I was there, and and I I, I seem to remember that you know Chuck quit because he was he wanted to work for the railroads or something like that, and then they got a new guy and that might have been Larry, but I don't know, and I know that some people say that uh, the person on that um, security camera footage of the night before the robbery looks like. Um, looks like him, but I wouldn't be able to say for sure because I don't remember him. As far as the job goes, you had said that there was specifically one hard and fast rule that you don't let anybody in, correct? Yeah, I mean, we had a lot of rules, but that was was definitely one that was very clear, like uh, don't let anyone into the building unless they work there. Did anybody give you any instructions on if you saw police officers asking to be buzzed in? No, we were never uh, um, given a plan for for that. And this is just an opinion question. If you had been in that situation and you saw what was quite possibly police officers, two of them outside without a police car around and they wanted to come in, would you have hit the, um, the, the alarm uh, that goes directly to the police department that was at the security desk just as a precaution? Yeah, that, I mean, that's really hard to say. Um, I, uh, You know, of course, I would like to think that uh, that I would not have let them in. But, um, yeah, that's that's really hard to say. So you stopped working at the museum in 1987, and the heist, of course, happened in 1990. So you weren't interviewed by uh, 
the Boston police or the FBI or anything, right? No, I was interviewed by the FBI. You were? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, they. Uh, I was living in New York um, at the time. I moved out of Boston in 88, I think. And um, they found me through my father. Um, so I like to joke that uh, my dad ratted me out to the feds. <laughs> but um, they, <laughs> Dan, uh, Detective uh, Dan Salzone mm-hmm. um, uh, called me and... Uh, then uh, I talked to him uh, for a while on the phone, and then uh, two agents came down and interviewed me in person. What was that like? Uh, that was uh, really interesting, and it was kind of funny too. Like, the first thing is like a I was working for a mural paint company in uh, in Lower Manhattan, and they came to uh, where I was working, and. For some reason, it was surprising to me, but they look exactly like FBI agents that you see on TV, you know, with the trench coats and mirrored sunglasses and crew cuts and skinny black ties and whatnot. And, uh, and of course, they do the whole thing where they flip open their... Um, their no- show you, their you know, notepad? Their, their, their FBI identification. Uh, oh, okay. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, so that was kind of funny. And then they wanted to interview me in their car. But um, I lived uh, just a couple of blocks away from where um, I was working. So I thought, okay, why don't we just go to where I live? Because I lived in kind of a, you know, a run-down loft space on uh, Canal Street, which was, you know, these were, this was a long time ago. So it was before it was gentrified and was kind of, I, I thought that if I brought these guys to where I live, then they'll see that um, obviously even if I was involved with the robbery at all, I didn't make any money off of it because I was living in the, in the dump. So we, we got there and um, sat down and they asked me questions for pro- probably a little over an hour or so. Um, and uh, And that was strange to me too because the – they asked questions exactly the way you would see it on TV. There was one of the guys was really friendly and nice and chatty, and the other guy just glared at me with his, you know, elbows on his knees and didn't say anything. They, you know, they asked, um, they get, one guy asked me uh, all kinds of questions, and every once in a while he would throw in a question that was sort of like a curveball. I don't know to see uh, how I would react. They were all questions relating to uh to the heist and had you heard you had you heard about the heist before uh before you were contacted by Oh them? sure, yeah. Um I was uh, I, I was actually in Italy when the robbery happened, so I have an alibi. Likely story, Jeffrey. <laughs> and uh uh no, I, I heard about it and I was I was shocked and um so and I had been keeping up a lot with the, whatever developments there were about it, so I knew uh, quite a bit about it uh, by the time that I spoke to the FBI. But m- most of their questions were um, uh, about security at the museum and different people that worked there, and you know things like that. And, and then you know they asked me a couple of trick questions, like, uh, did I ever think about how I might go about stealing something from there? And that was the only time that I. 
uh, well, I don't want to get myself in trouble by saying that I lied to the FBI because it seems like that's uh, something that gets people in trouble <laughs> these days. But uh, I said that I that I had because I had thought about stealing something because that was part of my job. But actually, in, in fact, I don't think that I ever had considered stealing anything from there. What did the uh, what did the bad cop in that good cop bad cop situation oh, he, think about he, he that? He didn't change his expression once. He of just course. sat there like a like a. He mad dogged you. Yeah. That that's what Lance does to all our interview subjects. Yeah. I'm usually asking the probing questions, and he's just mad dogging people. <laughs> you should see how I'm staring at the phone right now. Man, that's a good technique. <laughs> <laughs> Are you aware of the FBI interviewing any of your other coworkers or any? Um, Anyone else, like any other night watchman from that time or, or guard from that time? Well, I, I assume that if they tracked me down, they must have uh, been asking, uh, they must have been looking into everybody that worked there. But I haven't talked to, I haven't spoken to anyone. Um, you know, I lost track of uh, all the people that I knew there, and I, I never heard any other stories about anybody being interviewed, but... I imagine most people were. Could you glean anything from their their line of questioning? Like, like obviously you you're not guilty. W- were they asking about specific people like more than once or anything like that? I can't think of anything. I don't. Th- I, I imagine that there wasn't anything that really uh, um, stuck out to me at the time, or else I would have remembered it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I can't say that there was that they had any gave me any hints about what direction they were going with with the investigation um it just seemed to me like they were asking a lot of questions about a security system and different people that worked at the museum and um yeah you know like gathering information and sort of evaluating how i was answering their questions mm-hmm. you know i mean you seem to have a pretty decent memory about you know that time frame when you worked there, and your story has a pretty amusing anecdote about uh, a, an incident that happened um, involving a, a candelabra, I believe. Uh, do you mind <laughs> elaborating a bit on that story? Yeah, sure. Um, one thing that I, I like to do when I was making rounds was uh, looking at artwork with the flashlight. We carry this really large flashlights, about a foot and a half long, which was our only weapon, according to Lyle. And it was a you know pretty powerful flashlight. And, and if you looked at uh, certain oil paintings with the flashlight, you could see through different layers of the glaze down to the underpainting. I really um, liked doing this because you know, as a young painter, um, I could learn a lot about how some of these painters had uh, made their paintings. The night of the story, I was up in the uh, Gothic room, which is on the, the third floor, and uh, in, in there was one of my favorite paintings. It's by it's, uh, Adam and Eve by Lucas Cranach. So I was stepping back from the painting to get the whole thing within the beam of the flashlight, and I felt like uh, something hard jab in between my shoulder blades and I immediately knew what it was and there was this um, medieval candelabra about five feet tall made of uh, cast iron I could feel it after I hit it I could feel that I knocked it off balance and then I could 
feel, you know, because it was totally dark, I couldn't see it. I could feel like this kind of vacuum open up <laughs> behind me, and then the the candelabra had tipped over completely and and hit the floor with a really loud sound, you know, a really loud crash, like a gong. And um, right after that, my walkie-talkie started squawking because the woman that uh, I was working with that night was calling me because she heard the crash and she was, you know, freaked out. She's like, what is that? What was that sound? And, uh, you know, I didn't know what to say. So I said, oh, I think it's coming from the second floor. I'll go down and check it. So I, you know, I ran down to the second floor. Of course, nothing was going on down there. Then when I went back to the desk, I played dumb and she was kind of a superstitious sort. In fact, um, when I worked with her, uh, she she was too nervous to do the rounds in the museum, so I would do all of her rounds and my rounds, and uh, she would just sit at the desk the whole night. So I kind of led her uh, or let her think that maybe something supernatural would happen, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then on the my my next round I I checked out the candelabra and I put it back up, and one thing had been uh, one of the I'm not sure what you would call it. One of the things that held one of the candles was bent, and I was able to bend it back in place, but everything else was fine, except uh, uh, some of the tiles in the floor had been chipped. So um, the next night I brought some uh, crazy glue, and I glued the tiles back together. And you can still see it today. I was at the museum a few years ago with some friends, and I was telling them the story, and... Uh, as proof, I found where the cracked tiles were. So anyone who's listening uh, and you haven't found a reason to go to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, we just are going to lay one more reason on you, and that is to head up to the Gothic Room and yeah. check out the candelabra and some uh, repaired but still semi-cracked tiles from your days as a night watchman. Now, that brought up another question as you were telling that story. Was it very common to communicate with your fellow night watchmen uh, by way of walkie-talkie? Did that kind of yeah. communication happen a lot? Uh, yeah. So if you were sitting at the at the desk uh, and you saw someone needed to be buzzed in, would it be instinctual for you to radio to the other person or just take matters into your own hands and allow or disallow someone to enter? That's a good question. Uh, I had never thought of that before. Yeah, no, that, that, that's, a, that's a really tough question because there was quite a lot of, as I remember, a lot of communication between the person who's doing the rounds and the person who's sitting at the desk because, uh, you know, it's kind of lonely work, you know, so... Yeah, I, I agree. I almost picture myself doing it and just, you know, doing the rounds early 20s and maybe even just joking around just to because I can imagine walking through a, a dark museum and maybe getting a little paranoid or you know a little freaked right. out and just needing that communication with another human just to kind of break it up a little bit um so that's that's where my head went to in addition to obviously the night of the heist would it be instinctual for somebody to say you know hey you might want hey, to come the, down hey here the police the yeah. police are here can you come down Exactly. But, you know, who's to say, like, would you would you radio the other guard after the police had come in or while they were waiting outside? You know what I mean? Like, if you actually believe that um, they were police, 
would you leave them outside while you radioed the other guard and said that the police are here, you should come down or, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I get what you're saying. I, I'm not sure. I don't know how I would re- would have reacted in that situation. So I don't know how I would react either, because when you see policemen anyway, that seems to trump any priority. So right. you want to attend to the policeman. I have one quick question about the uh, view that the guard sees when he's at the security desk from the camera that's outside, which you said is not the same camera that is in the video from the night before. This is a live mm-hmm. feed going outside very clear. Is it the entire street? Like, would you be able to see if a car pulled up and poli- uh, people exited the car? No, I don't I don't think so. Um, I, it was more like a you know, like a a video um for buzzing someone into an apartment building or something you know what i mean i think it was probably mounted just above the door um so you would just see the person i don't know if you would see much of what was going on behind them i see so it was almost like a straight on um kind of medium shot of uh of anyone standing there it wasn't like a full body shot with a with a street in the right. back okay cool was there any image that a guard could look at that would show the street from the security desk? Yeah, I don't remember. And I, I think maybe uh, you could see the, um, you know, the security camera footage that was being shot that would, that would switch back and forth between the street and outside the door. I think we were able to watch that as well, but I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. I see. Well, you know, I'm just being retrospective and, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and I like to imagine sitting there and looking and seeing uh, the first image of the police officers uh, from that, that, that door camera and then double checking to see if they had a car there, if the lights were on. But who knows, you know, if I'm 20 years old and it's my, it's my night job and I see police officers that might just go right to my, the top of my priority list and I'm going to buzz them in. The questionable thing about that is, um, why, why did the police show up? You know, if they were real police officers and nobody in the museum had uh, called them because what, what what was the thing that the, that the that these guys said to get into the museum? They're here about the disturbance in the courtyard. They heard about a disturbance in the courtyard. How would they have heard about that without having been notified by a guard in the museum? There was no... Right. The only way they would have heard about a disturbance in the courtyard would have been if a security guard had called them or if the, or if they had uh, pushed this uh, alarm button so um i mean that's a, a suspicious I, I would hope that you know as a good security guard i would would have thought like what do you mean uh disturbance in the courtyard i didn't we didn't report anything what i remembered was that uh they had found that the motion detectors for the blue room were the uh, Manet Shea Tortini yep. was stolen, uh, that those motion detectors hadn't been set off uh, after the uh, burglars um, entered the museum, but there was some weird stuff that had happened uh, with the motion detectors in that room before. Yeah, the motion detectors detected um, movement in the blue room at 12.27 a.m. and at 12.53 a.m., which was about a half hour before the uh, two costumed... Uh, police officers buzzed right and so yeah and so the 
the thieves never made their way, or at least those two thieves never made their way to the blue room. So whoever that was most likely took the Che Tortoni off the wall. Right. So, yeah, regardless of the intentions of this confusion around if you're a night watchman and police arrive and tell you that they're they're there because of a disturbance in the courtyard and you're thinking as a night watchman, well, there's no disturbance in the courtyard because I would know that's that's confusing. But Tim's point is also if there was a disturbance anywhere, where did Mm -hmm. that come from and what's the is that just a coincidence like the night before video was a coincidence that someone showed up you know yeah where the security guard desk was if there was a dis- you know a disturbance in the courtyard you would you would know it and because you weren't that far away from the courtyard 10 yards or so oh right okay abbath opened the door right like like a little bit before they came in as well so maybe Opened and closed the door. Yeah. You're talking about when yep. he says that he tested it. What, the, the, the side entrance door? Yeah. I believe the, oh. the same entrance they came in, I believe. So, yeah, Abbott has said before that he opened and closed the Palace Road door, which I'm assuming that is the same side entrance door that, that we're talking yeah. about. And he said that he's done that several other times to make sure that it's locked. And he also claimed that the security logs, which is another question, he claimed that the security logs would indicate that he's telling the truth that I do always open and close that door to make sure that it's locked. Did you fill out security logs? Is this like a handwritten logbook or is it a, um, more of a time stamped, you know, computerized thing? No, we didn't have a, a, a log book, a handwritten one that I remember. Oh, that's interesting. Cause I guess the FBI has a uh, possession of those, uh, security logs that Abbott claimed has his, you know, account of opening and closing the door. That's interesting. Maybe, yeah, I, yeah. you know, I, uh, now that you're talking about it, I, I seem to actually to remember you would write down if who came in and at what time. Gotcha. So it probably wasn't something that was so official that it was, uh, you know, they probably weren't scanning IDs and, and giving people, you know. No, it was, you know, it was pretty low tech. So I just have two more quick questions. One, you experienced what it was like down in the basement in the boiler room area, and that was where Abbott was... Um, was taken by the thieves while they did their thieving. What was that? What was that area like? Well, it was a it was a long hallway with the um, boilers and you know heating stuff. It was sort of like the the bowels of the museum, basically. You know, I think maybe they had the circuit breakers and whatnot. And my last question is: uh, Who in Italy did you sell the stolen <laughs> yeah, <right>. minate? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> that was my that was my bad cop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening to Empty Frames, a co-production of Crawlspace Media and Audio Boom. Original music by Jared Jensen. Please learn more by going to emptyframespodcast.com and crawlspacepodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. Follow Empty Frames on Twitter at empty underscore frames. We're also on Facebook and Instagram as Empty Frames Podcast. We'll be back in two weeks, and we talk to former Gardner guard Marge Gallus, who has this to say. There was a man that um, at one point was very disrespectful, disobedient, so I had to call one of the supervisors on duty that day. He went into the office, closed the door, 
he was in there for a while doing who knows what. That's where all of the recording devices for the tapes were were kept. That's where the thieves had broken into that door and stole those recording devices. <laughs> 